Chapter Six of Souls for Sale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Souls for Sale by Rupert Hughes. Chapter Six. That clergyman's home was really a theater. If there had been a cameraman to follow the various members about, it would have been what the moving picture people call a location. The Reverend Dr. Steddon abhorred theaters or moving pictures and all forms of dramatic fiction, except his own sermons. Yet everybody in the house was playing a part, with benevolent purposes, of course. But then benevolence is one of the motives of nearly all acting, to divert someone from his own distresses by exploiting imaginary joys or sorrows. Vicarious atonement and all forms of vicarious activity are the actuating spirit of the vast industry of honorable artistic pretense that has flourished since the world was. All the world's a stage, as somebody has said, and everybody is always acting. If certain people charge money for acting, that means no more than the fact that most preachers charge money for preaching and doctors for doctoring. The acting in the Steddon home was of the most amateurish quality, but then the audience was as amateurish as the playing, and collaborated as audiences must if plays are to prosper. The girl's role was the most difficult imaginable. She had to repress a hideous secret, conceal a frantic remorse, rein in a wild grief, and conduct it as a gentle regret. She hated herself and her enforced hypocrisy. Romance had sickened in her like a syrup that bribes the palate and fills the stomach with nausea. Her secret was a vomit, and no easier or pleasanter to control. Her soul was so ill of it that her very throat retched. Nausea was part of her condition, too, and would have tormented her if she had been the formal widow of Elwood, instead of what Brander Matthews once phrased as the unwedded mother of his unborn child. She had been trained from childhood to believe herself a sinner lost in Adam's fall, and to search her heart for things to repent. She believed in an actual hell, and her terrors of the infertile griddles were as vivid as those that poor little seven-year-old Marjorie Fleming wrote down in her babyish diary. She had great native gifts of self-punishment, a habit older than Christianity, and found in all nations. Did not the Greeks and Latins have a comedy— the self-tormentor? Mem was worthy of its long title. She was Hetote Moromenos. Nothing made her more eager to get her gone from her home town than her fear that at almost any moment she would reach the end of her histrionism, fling off the mask, and tell the venomous truth. It was not merely a question of having to lie or to evade discovery. Mem had to dramatize herself, to foresee situations, and to force herself to be another self, to mimic sincerity and simplicity. She was in the trite situation, familiar in the theater and in the poems and stories about the theater, where the broken-hearted mummer must conceal from the audience a personal grief. It would have been easier if Mem had merely to play the clown, for hilarity could be carried off hysterically, but her role was one of half-tones, grays, and mild regrets, Many people knew that she was fond of Elwood. Many girls and boys called to see her or dragged her to the telephone to offer consolation and satisfy curiosity. 
to them she must express a proper sorrow as a cordial friend without letting them treat her as too deeply involved this was bitter work and she felt it a treachery to her dead lover to her mother she must play the same character her mother may have guessed that the tragedy was deeper than the revelation but the poor old soul had had so much gloom in her life that she did not demand more than she got dr steddon lived in such clouds that he had almost forgotten his refusal to let elwood call on ma'am he knew that she had been at the doctor's office when elwood was brought there and the shock of this explained what confusion he recognized in mem's manner he was acting too but his acting was the constant show of cheerfulness he went about smiling laughing talking of mem's swift recovery in the golden west he said that they would all be glad to get rid of her for a spell but his heart was a black ache of despair and fear of that death which he spoke of in the pulpit as a mere doorway to eternal bliss his smiling muscles rebelled when he was alone and he paced his study like a frightened child beating his hands together and whispering to his father to spare him this unbearable punishment a hurricane struck the little town of calverley on the day of elwood's funeral when mem expressed a wish to sing with the choir at the service over their late fellow-singer both mother and father forbade her to think of it her mother cried a girl who's got to be shipped out west has got no right to go out in weather like this mem felt it a crowning betrayal of elwood to let him be carried out to a pauper's grave in such merciless rain her heart urged her to dash through the streets burst into the church and proclaim to the world how she adored the boy but she had to protect her father and mother from such selfish self-sacrifice and such ruthless atonement so she stayed at home and stared through the streaming windows she saw her poor old father set out to preach the funeral sermon he had that valor of the priests which leads them to risk death in order to defeat death to endure all hardship lest the poorest soul go out of the world without a formal conja dr steddon clutched his old overcoat about him and plunged into rain that hatched the air in long slanting lines he had not reached the gate when his umbrella went upward into a black calyx he leaned it against the fence and pushed on then his hat blew off and scurled from pool to pool he ran after it his hair a flutter his bald spot spattering back the rain miss steddon was not missed at the church for there was nobody there to miss her the whole choir saved its voice by staying away only the farnaby family went dripping up the aisle and back the hearse and two hacks moped past the window where mem watched on the boxes the drivers sat the shabbiest men on earth at best but now peculiarly sordid as they slumped in their wet overcoats disgusted and dejected their hats blown over their faces their whips aggravating the misery but not the speed of the sodden nags that might have wished at their own funeral mem had to leave the window her impulse was to run out and follow the miserable cortege to tear wet flowers from the gardens and strew the road with them to fill the grave with them and shelter elwood from the pelting rain it was a funeral like that in which mozart's body was lost and like his widow mem had to mourn at home it was her meek fear of being dramatic and conspicuous that saved her from the temptation to publish her concern but she stumbled up to her room and let her grief have sway she smothered her sobs as best she could in the old comforter of her bed 
but the other children heard her and asked questions her mother kept them away from her and did not go near herself feeling that this was one of the times when sympathy gives most comfort by absence when her eyes were faint with exhaustion and could squeeze no more tears when her throat could not jerk out another sob her soul lay becalmed in utter inanition then she heard a hack drive up to the gate and heard her father's hurried rush for the porch the old man was chilled through by his graveside prayer but forgetful of himself in the exultation of his office and all a babble of pity for his client mem heard her mother scolding him out of his wet clothes into dry but he kept up his chatter it isn't always easy to find nice things to say at funerals but there was everything fine to be said over that poor boy a good hard-working lad that slaved for his mother and went to church regular and why i don't suppose he ever had an evil thought mem sank into a chair by her window the rain whipped the panes and the wind rattled them in the chipped putty that held them to the casement the last few days had kept her thoughts so busy that she had neglected her housewifery a little she was shocked to see that a spider had spread a web from the shutter to the vine the gale had torn the web to shreds and was threatening to rip it loose the spider sopping and pearled with rain was having a desperate battle to keep from being swept away he clung and caught new holds as a sailor clutches the shrouds in a tempest the girl felt a kinship with the poor beastie her soul and her body were like spider and web and a great storm menaced them both her flesh seemed but a frail network that spasms of sobbing or of coughing threatened to tear to pieces her soul was a loathsome arachnid spinning traps for flies and storms of remorse and grief threatened to dislodge it and send it down the wind of eternity but still her body clung to life and her soul to her body she began to long to be shut of the town however and the dull playhouse where she enacted over and over the same dull drama to the same dull audience her father and mother drove her almost mad by their devoted gentleness hitherto they had both been strict and a little tiresome with moral lessons and rebukes making goodness a dull staple suspiciously over-advertised and creating a rebellion by discipline but after the doctor's first visit they heaped almost intolerable coals of fire upon her head with their devoted faith in her if they had any doubts of her future it was only of the wicked people outside the fold who would attack and beguile their ewe lamb they never suspected her of even the capacity for sin though she felt that it was she who had seduced her sacred lover and not he her at times her parents treated her with that unquestioning approval we grant only to the newly dead and the unmerited homage was harder to endure than unearned blame since it had a belittling influence where the other would have aroused self-esteem she was no longer at home at home she had to draw on a mask the moment she came in when she went to the doctor's office she encountered truth and the frank facing of it she could be herself a normal young animal who had done a natural thing unluckily and had lost none of her rights to life wealth or the pursuit of happiness when she stepped off the bretherick porch she was a very allegory of defiant youth when she stepped on her own porch she became immediately a magdalen bowed with a shame she dared not even ask forgiveness for it was particularly hard to act a part all day long and every day since she had never been an actress before if her audience of two had had more familiarity with the art 
she might not have succeeded in duping both so completely, but they never dreamed of the truth. Deceiving them was so easy that she despised herself. Especially she loathed herself for taking their paltry savings. They had foreseen the cruel days that lie ahead of superannuated preachers, and had somehow managed to put away a little hoard against the inevitable famine, though this meant that even their prosperity was always just this side of pauperdom. But they lavished their tiny wealth upon their scapegrace daughter, and never imagined that the real cause for her spendthrift voyage was to save herself and them from the catastrophe of a public scandal. Money is always the most emotional of human concerns, though it is the least celebrated in romance. Again and again, Mem revolted at the outrage of robbing her own parents of their one shield against old age. She went again and again to Dr. Bretherick and demanded that he release her from her promises not to tell the truth and not to kill herself. But he compelled her to his will, and she was too glad for a will to replace her own panic to resist him. For a necessary stimulant, he prophesied that somehow in that land of gold she was seeking she would find such wealth that she could repay her parents their loan with usury, with wealth perhaps. Who knew? In these times, he said, it's the girls who are running away from home to find their fortunes, and lots of them are finding them. Your dear old fool of a father is always preaching about the good old days when women were respected and respectable, when parents were revered and took care of their children. As my boy says, where does he get that stuff? He knows better. Why does he have to lie about it so piously? Why don't they use some plain horse sense, some truth with a little T in the pulpit once in a while, and not so much truth with a capital T? In the good old days, the best parents used to whip their children nearly to death. The poor ones bound them out as apprentices into child slavery, chained them to factories for fourteen hours a day. They had no child labor laws, no societies for prevention of cruelty to children, no children's court, no Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, and the wickedness was frightful. And as for the grown-up girls, most of them had no education and no chance for ambition. If they went wrong, they could go to a convent or slink around the back streets or go out and walk the streets at night. The drunkenness and debauchery and disease were hideous. Even the Sabbath-breaking and skepticism were universal. But still they call them the good old days." And they dare to praise them above these glorious days when women are for the first time free. And men were never free either till now, for men had the responsibility of women's souls on their own. And my God, what a burden it was, and how they boggled it. This is really the year one. Now at last a girl like you can look life in the face, and if she makes a mistake she can make her life worthwhile and not fall into the mewling, puling parasite and disease germ of the good old-fashioned woman you ought to thank god for letting you live now and you've got to show him how much you prize the golden opportunity it's just sun up this is the dawn of the day when man and woman are equal and children have a clean sky overhead i was reading the other day a list a mile long of self-made women who had begun poor and finished rich some of them made their wealth out of candy, and some of them in Wall Street, some of them in all sorts of arts, paintings, novels, plays, music, acting. You might go into the movies, for instance, and make more money than coal old Johnny. 
It's scandalous what some of those little tykes are earning. I tell you, ma'am, if you've got any spunk, you'll make yourself a millionaire's. All this suffering is education. All this acting you're doing may show you the way to glory. Go west, young woman, and go up in the world. I've never been anywhere or seen anything. I've never even seen a movie, said ma'am. Well, as the feller said, who was asked if he could play the violin, he didn't know. He'd never tried. When you get a safe distance from any danger of giving your pa apoplexy, sneak into a movie and see if you see anything you can't do. Looks like to me you might cut quite a swath there. Probably you'd have to learn to ride a horse, throw a lasso, and dance. But falling off trains and being spilled off cliffs in automobiles oughtn't to take much talent, and it can't be very risky. Since I see the same young ladies running the same gauntlets and coming up and smiling the next picture, there's a serial at the palace once a week that shows one wide-eyed lassie who is absolutely bulletproof. They can't drown that girl, burn her, freeze her, or poison her. She laughs at gravity, bounces off roofs and cliffs, and bobs up serenely from below. Her throat simply can't be throttled. She can take care of herself anywheres. Why, I've seen her overpower nearly a hundred bandits so far, and she looks fresher than ever. If I was you, I'd take a whack at it. Do they have movies in Tuxin? I think likely. I hear they've got them on both poles, north and south. Mem imbibed mysterious tonics at the doctor's office, and always came away buoyed up with the feeling that her tragedy was unimportant, commonplace, and sure to have a happy finish. But the moment she reached home, she entered a domain where everything was solemn, where jokes were never heard, except pathetic old witticisms more important in intention than in amusement. They began to irritate her, to wear her raw and exacerbate her tenderest feelings. She was beginning to be ruined by the very influences that should have sweetened her soul. And at last, one day, quite unexpectedly, when she was under no apparent tension at all, when her father had gone to visit a sick parishioner and her mother was quietly at work upon Mem's traveling clothes, the girl reached the end of her resources. Perhaps it was a noble revolt against interminable deceit. Perhaps it was a selfish impulse to fling off a little of her back-breaking burden of silence. Perhaps it was a mad desire to make someone else a partner in her lies. Perhaps it was the unendurable hum of her mother's sewing machine. Whatever it was that moved her, she rose quietly, put down her needlework, went into Mrs. Steddon's room, closed the door, took her mother's hands from the cloth they were guiding, and said in a quiet tone, Mama, I want to tell you something. I'd rather break your heart than deceive you any longer. Why, honey, what's the matter? Why, Mem, dear, what on earth is it? Sit down and tell your mother, of course, you can't break this tough old heart of mine. What is it, baby? She whispered it so softly that her breath was hardly syllabled. Her mother caught less the words than the hiss and rustle of her awe and the wild language of her trapped eyes. Mama, I'm... I'm going to have, to have a baby. The shock was its own ether. Mrs. Steddon whispered back, cowering, You? You? 
my baby, you a baby? Mem nodded and nodded till her knees were on the floor and her brow in her mother's lap. Old hands came gropingly about her cheeks. She felt the drip, drip of tears falling into her hair, each tear a separate pearl from a crown of pride. Then the shivering hands at her cheeks lifted her face, and she stared up as much amazed as her mother, in whose downward stare there was no horror or reproach, only compassion and infinite fear. And her mother fumbled at the dreadful question, But who? Who? Elwood. The hands upholding her head dropped limp. The eyes above her were dry, blank, and ghastly. The mind behind them baffled beyond effort. Then they grew human again with a sudden throb of tears upon tears, and her mother groaned with double pity. Poor baby, poor ma'am, poor little thing. Grandmothers acquire a witch-like knowledge of life. They know the things that may not be published. They see the cruel wickedness of the world overwhelming their own beloved ones, and an awful wisdom is theirs. They know something of the mockery of punishment, and they are usually derided by the less experienced for their lax ideas of the miserable bungling called justice. Mem's confession was an enunciation of grandmotherhood to Mrs. Steddon. She was so stunned that she expressed no horror at the abyss of horror yawning before her feet. Two instincts prevailed while her reason was in a stupor. Love of her husband, love of her child. The decision was easy, and she made no difficulty of the gross deceits involved. Her husband must be protected in his illusions, and protected from the necessity of wreaking his high moral principles on his own child. His child must be protected from the merciless world and the immediate wrath of the village. She said little, she caressed much. She confirmed Dr. Bretherick's prescription and joined the conspiracy administering secret comfort to the girl and to the father. The nearer the day of Mem's departure, the slower dragged the hours between. But at last, she was standing on the back platform of a train bound for the vast southwest. She was throwing tear-sprent kisses to her father and mother as they blurred into the distance. They watched the train dwindling like a telescope drawn into itself, as so many parents have watched so many trains and ships and carriages vanish into space with the beloved of their hearts and bodies. They turned back to their lives as if they had closed a door upon themselves. But Mem, as she returned to her place in the car, felt as if a portcullis had lifted. Before her was all outdoors. End of chapter 6 Recording by Deanna Beauvais